Nahum, Nahum chapter 2. We, um, we're going to try to blink through chapters 2, 3, and 4 and finish up Nahum and, and move on. It's certainly not because we have exhausted the book of Nahum in the first chapter. <clears throat> it's not because there's, <coughs> there's nothing else left to glean from the book, but I, I truly feel like the Lord would have us to move on all on. I think we're going to move to the book of Galatians, and I think we're going to move to the book of Galatians Sunday morning and, and start off from there and, and then continue it. We'll, we'll back up and look a little more history of it on Wednesday nights and study Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. But um, as, as much more information as there is, I, I, I feel like God has maybe shown me what he wants me to see for now. I want us to see from the book of Nahum, and that is the the opposite direction from, from what we saw in Jonah. Um, God, God allowed us to take a look at Jonah to see his mercy and his, his merciful hand, um, his willingness to forgive anybody that's willing to repent, um, his willingness to save anybody that, that is willing to, to turn around and, and seek salvation. But by the same token, there is another prophet here in Nahum that goes to the same city that Jonah went to, um, that goes to Nineveh, and to be honest, it's a, it's a settled issue, and it lets us see that God does have a too far point. God, God does have his limits to where he will allow somebody to go, and I don't think it's just Nineveh. I don't think it's just Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think it's just cities. I think it's the lives of people. I think there are people out there. <laughs> Many of them may be people that, that you yourself have witnessed to. And, and they have been extended a hand of mercy many times. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just my belief. And I have every right to be wrong. So it is what it is. But I, I, I believe somebody can tell God no one too many times. Um, I, I believe you can spit in the face of God and, and reject his offer one too many times and laugh it off and knock it down and, and say whatever you want. And, and, and I believe from that, God may let that person go on and live the rest of their life. They may make a lot of money. They may be happy. They may not be punished in this life. They may never know, but, but the judgment is already sealed. The, the fate is already done. And when God says it is enough, it is enough. And that's what we see here in, in the book of Nahum. This is a picture of the destruction that awaits a city that at the time this begins is the most powerful nation on earth. They basically rule the world. They rule everything around them. They've got a city that no man can overtake in their eyes. They've got everything they need. They've got money beyond imagination. They've got food, water, wealth, you name it. They've got it. And at the time when Nahum comes, he says, not for long. Not for long. God's judgment day is coming. So chapter 2, it says <coughs> that he dasheth in pieces. He that dasheth in pieces come up before thy face. And keep the munition. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. 
The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. Your chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another. In the broad ways they, they shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. He shall recount his, his worthies. They that stumble in their walk. They that make haste to the wall thereof and to the defense. And defense shall, shall be prepared. Verse 6 says, the gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. So Nahum describes the destruction in two parts here in chapter 2. You got verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 13. We see there he said that he dasheth in pieces. That word dasheth comes from a word that simply means a hammer or a breaker. And what he's saying is they're going to be crushed. They're going to be driven by the, this hammer. It's, it's indicating what's going to happen to Nineveh and their walls and all their stuff. See, for many years, the Assyrians have been on the offensive, if you will. They've been the ones conquering. They've been the one going against other lands and destroying and taking them and taking their wealth and, and tearing them down. But here, they're going to be on the defensive. They're going to be the one... Uh, on the side that, that is being attacked, as you begin to look at this, you see that the suburbs, the, the outlying areas outside of this massive wall there at Nineveh, they've already been overtaken by, by the armies. They've already been overrun, and now it's come up against Nineveh, and here it is with, this, with these huge towering walls and the hundreds of 200-foot high towers and surrounded by the rivers and the water. And they had water channeling through the city and those man-made canals. And they had the farmlands inside of the city and the vineyards, everything producing fruit so that they had everything inside. There was nothing that they needed. And with these walls, it seems as though the city is invincible. Even if something happened that they couldn't overpower an enemy outside the walls, they could sit inside, drink their water, plant their gardens, eat from their vineyards, and they could simply outweigh any army that was on the outside. I mean, sooner or later, an army on the outside, if they can't get in, is going to run out of food, water supplies, energy. They're going to have to go somewhere else. So even if they weren't strong enough to overtake, they certainly could, could wait it out and, and wait until the other enemies went away, but, but you know, we've seen before what God can do with a wall, haven't we? You know, you, you know what he did with the walls of Jericho, and they didn't have to do nothing. All they had to do was walk around the walls for seven days. All they had to do was do what God said, and God himself pushed the walls down. The walls, nothing to God. I keep reminding myself of that. $750,000 is nothing to God. Building this trail is nothing to God. I keep reminding myself, this stuff's nothing to God. It's big to me pretty big wall and then but 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 you you can look at it two ways you can look at something that's big and seems insurmountable as you can or you can look at something as big and put your trust in it and god don't want your trust in anything else god you you can you can look at a bank account as big and put your trust in it that's not where god wants his trust god wants his trust in us but so they got these towering walls in verse number three the shield of the mighty man is made red valiant men are in scarlet the chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation the fir tree shall be terribly shaken there's possibilities about that passage the scholars have put different things some of them talk about the the red on the shields there that the 
uh, is made red, the shield of the mighty men made red. And a lot of them say that's referring to the blood of the armies that have already been defeated on the outside of the wall. And the blood is what's on the shield and makes it red. Other scholars, and, and they, they can prove theirs because they know that the Babylonians had scarlet apparel. Their, their war attire was, was mostly scarlet and had their shields. Some say this referring to that. In all honesty, it could be referring to both. We know that the Babylonians are in on this and we know that they wear their scarlet and we know that their shields probably were covered with blood from that of the enemy. So maybe they're, they're, they're talking about both, but either way, it is clearly <laughs> describing. I mean, we, we have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of knowing what happened. So we know it's the Babylonians. They don't know what's fixing to happen. This is a prophecy. This is what's being given. And so he's describing it. And so from that, by the fact that he is talking about this, this crimson color, you know it's going to include the Babylonians. But again, we, we can look back and, and know that it was. So Nahum, he, he paints this, this vivid picture, if you will, the impending fall of those who have turned their backs against God. Verse number four, chariots raging the streets, jostle against one another in the broad way, seem like torches, run like lightnings. Verse number six is, that's another, really a verse of, of possibilities. It says, the gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Now, the river actually, it was protected around on one side by the river, but they had actually channeled rivers into the city, which really was several of the major world leaders back then did that where they channeled water in. And so it came from the river. And then, of course, they, they used the water to turn wheels, to grind and to make wine. It ground the grapes. It, it ground corn to make grain. I mean, they, they made use of the water by channeling it in. But if you channel water inside the walls, you got to have a way for the water to get in, right? So it, it's pretty well known that the most heavily guarded places around these walls would have been the entranceways to the water. I mean, obviously, that's going to be a weak point. That's, that's a way where something is able to get in. And so there, there's a couple of different theories here from, from the scholars when they talk about the flooded. Some say, as I mentioned before, that, that it was flooded by the waters. The river rose and the flood waters broke the gates thereof. And, and it opened a hole in the walls for the, the enemy to come in or for, for the Babylonians and, and the Medes. To, to come in and then there's other scholars that say, well, it wouldn't have been water, but it was a flood of the enemy soldiers that flooded those gates and overtook the heavily guarded city and they tore the gates down. And again, it's one of those either way deals. Either way, what we know is that the gates were torn down. Nahum predicted it would happen and we know that it did happen, that the gates were torn down and, and, and they, they came in and, and destroyed the city, destroyed everything in their path and even as it talked about there at the end shall run like light says that the palace shall be dissolved we know that everything in that city was dissolved or destroyed and, and then <laughs> verse number eight this is the first time since the opening statement of Nahum that you actually see Nineveh mentioned by name. This is, this is the midway point. He mentions it in chapter 1, and, and now 23 verses from the beginning and 24 verses from the end. He calls it by name again, and he refers to it as just a, an old pond that's going to dry up. He calls it a leaking pool of water. You know, if you got a pond, you got a pool, you got anything, if it's got a leak, it's just a matter of time. Time, right? If you don't add something back to it, and he describes it 
As this leaking pool in verse 8, like a pool of water, yet shall they flee away. Stand, stand shall they cry, but none shall look back. Verse number 9, take you the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and, and the glory out of the pleasant furniture. It was a custom of the day that when one major city, when there was a battle in a city, overtook another city, or even if it was just an army overtaking another army, it was customary to take the spoils. They went into the defeated army, and they took the spoils from the army. When it comes to a city, they went in, they took all the gold and all the silver and all the brass and all the bronze and all the money, and, and they took horses. They took anything that was of value. We saw it even when the Babylonians overtook Jerusalem. If you remember, they, they destroyed, they burned down the walls. We looked at it in Nehemiah after, after they rebuilt, but they burned the walls and they burned the gates. But they took everything. They even took the articles of gold and silver out of the temple of God. So, so it was customary to take the spoil. Now, here's the deal when he talks about taking the spoil. You got this great Assyrian empire that for nearly a couple of centuries has overthrown every nation in the world around them. And they've taken spoil from every city around them. Can you imagine the amount of wealth that's inside these walls? Can you imagine the, the, the amount of gold, the amount of silver, the, the silver cups and the gold cups and the gold coins and all the things that would have been there because they've taken it from every city. And on top of that, all the cities that they overrun, overthrew, conquered, and, and allowed them to remain, they were forced to pay taxes back to Nineveh, back to the Assyrian Empire. So even all that money would have been there. So there, there, there's a great amount of wealth. There's a lot to be taken away. That within itself to take away all the precious jewels and everything that was in there, that, that would have been a full-time job after the victory. So when, when uh, Nahum here goes on to verse number 10 to show the destruction, he talks about the fear of the inhabitants. And he uses three words here in verse 10 that are almost identical. It says, she is empty and void and waste. The heart melteth. He's talking about the people scared to death. The knees smite together and much pain is in all loins and the faces of them all gather blackness. Th those three words there. Empty, void, waste. They come from three different Hebrew words, but they carry a lot of the same meaning, which basically is empty. She's going to be emptied out. There's not going to be anything left. But, but that word waste comes from a word that, that also, y'all know a lot of times when you look up a Hebrew or a Greek word, there's multiple meanings. And, and one of the meanings of that word is annihilate. So Nahum is painting a very bleak picture here for the Assyrians that, that it's going to be empty. It's going to be an empty land because God is going to annihilate this city. There'll be nothing left. That's what happens when God says, vengeance is mine. When God takes vengeance, this is what you can expect to see. So he says their hearts melt with fear, knees tremble, and there's going to be pain and suffering and destruction. You know, they, they say that the city of Nineveh, I've, I've mentioned it, I know, a couple times was so completely destroyed that, that for years they didn't even know the location of the city. They didn't know where it was. But when Alexander the Great did his romp through the land and he became the world conqueror, world leader, and he went through taking city after city, it said that he marched across the location of the city of Nineveh and never even knew it was there. 
He never even knew that there had been a city there in the place. And then some statistics say it wasn't until 1842. It says that Layard and, yeah, Layard and Boda re-identified the site through their studies. They studied based on history and artifacts and things as to where it would have been. I don't know. I didn't put a lot of study time in that. It's a little irrelevant. I'm sure they may have dug. They may have found some things underground. I don't know. They may or may not have. But based off the research and the things that they had, they re-identified the location that they know pretty sure where within a reason of where, where the site would have been. But until there was some research done and put it back, God erased, God's vengeance erased an, an entire world leader population, one of the largest cities, largest walls ever built to a rubble to where you could not even tell it ever existed. I don't want to be on God's bad side. Verse 11 and 12, Nahum uses the lion as an illustration. That, that was the trademark of the Assyrian Empire. So it's not a coincidence because Nahum, is, is, he is identifying them with this lion. He's nailing them down. But because lion imagery played an important role in the Assyrian Empire, that's what the king posted himself at. Because with the lion being the king of the jungle or, or king of the beast, king over the field, that's how the Assyrian king identified himself in displaying his dominance over the world. He said, I am king of the world. I am like the lion. I am over everything else. I'm greater than everything else. So Nahum uses that. So there's no mistaking who he's talking about. He says in verse 11 and 12, where the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion walked and the lions wept and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for its whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Verse number 13, I'll be honest, that to me, to me, the, the most feared words in all of the Bible are written in, in this verse. I, I mean, the most dreaded, most feared, the, the worst thing that I believe could ever be spoken is written in verse 13. It says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. There can't be anything spoken worse than that. Our worst nightmare, worst imaginations can't come up with anything worse than God saying, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will burn her chariots in the smoke. The sword shall devour thy young lions. I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall be no more heard. See, God's prophet says, it's not the Medes that are against you. You think you got this figured out because you don't think they're that big. But it's not the Medes you need to be worried about. It's not the Babylonians that are against you. You may think you're bigger and stronger than them. They're not who you need to be worried about. It's me that's against you. God said, I, I am the one that is against you. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at um, 2 Kings in chapter 19. We backed up and read and talked about some prophecy there. I want to look back again, if we could, chapter 18 of 2 Kings. You remember I talked about the propaganda, how the Assyrians told the people and, and they told Hezekiah, man, don't, don't listen to him. Don't listen. He's just going to get you killed. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 31 says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by present. Come out to me, and then ye eat every man of his own vine, every of his fig tree, 
drink one of the waters of a cistern. I really don't remember how much we read of 18 and 19, but I, I, I just want to take a look at it again just for a minute. He says, I'll come and take away you to your own land, a land of corn, of wine, of bread, of vineyards. He's making all these promises to the people of, of, of Jerusalem, a land of olive and honey, and, and you may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah, who he persuaded you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Verse number 33 Second Kings chapter 18, he says, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He says, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? He says, Where are the gods of, uh, of Sepharvim and, and Hannah and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they? All the gods of the countries. Did they have delivered a country out of my hand? But then he steps over the line. Because he's talking to Jerusalem. And, and he says, who are they? And he says, that, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand. Well, God answers the question through Nahum. And he said, here I am. I'm the one that's fixing to teach you something. I'm the one that is against you. And I'm fixing to remove everything that ever existed about you. I'm not just going to remove you. I'm going to remove all your lionesses, your little harem, all your women. Remember, we looked at it two weeks ago. I'm going to remove all your seed. I'm not going to leave any of your sons, grandsons, any of your family. I'm not going to leave anything about you. There'll be no air, nothing to come behind. There won't be anything of these walls. There won't be anything of the spoils you brought in. I'm about to remove everything. I am against you. I will destroy this city. I will destroy armies and chariots and all things till there's nothing left. In chapter 3, it says, Woe to the bloody city. It's full of all lies and robberies. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip, the noise of rattling of the wheels, and the noise of the prancing horses and jumping chariots. The horsemen lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there's a multitude of slain. A great number of carcasses. And there's none end of their corpses. They stumble over their, over their corpses because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcraft. He says, you're polluting the whole world with all this sin and this wickedness. And behold, he says again, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. I will cast abominable filth upon thee, make thee vile, and will set thee as a, as a gazing stock. Verse 7 says, shall come to pass, that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? God says, woe to the city of Nineveh. And then he says again, I am against thee. See, God expresses his opposition to sin. God expresses his, his not just dissatisfaction, but his appall at, at whoredoms, at witchcraft, at idolatry, at, at all of the things that, that he points out here. And God said, there's nobody going to have pity on you. You, you, you've, You've been hard on these people. You've tortured. You've been one of the most brutal nations that ever lived. You've, you've ruthlessly killed and murdered people. You've tortured people. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. I'm fixing to make an example out of you. And I'm going to let others see what happens to those who forsake the one true God. And God uses the term 
whoredom here. Now, God uses that term a lot when he's talking about the children of Israel. When he talks about the children of Israel, he's pretty much talking specifically about idolatry. That's what whoredom is. That is selling themselves out to the one true God. And he's talking, but here, man, he, he lists a whole list of things in there with all their witchcraft and all their soothsayers and all of the immoral, godless things that are going on in this town just like would have been going on in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not just idol worship. It's all of the filth of the lifestyle and the sin and everything there. And it is accepted as okay. And God said, I've had enough. He said it about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said it here about Nineveh. I've had enough. I thank God he ain't said that about America yet. Because they can't be any worse than America. I can't imagine there being any more sin in those cities than there is in this country. I, th I thank God for the remnants. I do. I thank God for the remnants, for the people who are sitting in the house of God on Wednesday night, for the people who are getting up every morning and studying and praying unto God. I thank God for the remnants because it's the remnants is the reason this country still exists. I believe that with all my heart. All you got to do is look at Abraham and the life of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed and God bargained with him and God bargains all the way down. If there be 10 righteous, I'll spare the two cities. So we know that, that God... Remember even back to Nineveh? Remember back when he was dealing with Job? And he said, what, what about the children? And what about the animals? Should I not spare them? So we know that God takes into account the handful of the remnant. And we better thank God in America. There's a remnant sitting right here. There's some remnants in the church that's left. And, and I believe that's the only reason God's hand's still on this country. Because God shows us clearly in this book when he says, it's enough. It, it's enough. So verse number eight, God says this, this Assyrian king, are, are you better? Are they better than populous? No, that word populous comes from the word. It means a, a multitude of people. No would have been the capital of, of the northern empire, the northern part of Egypt. And he says, you think you're better than them that was situated among the rivers that have waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength and was infinite. Put and, and Lubum were thy helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into her captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. They cast lots for her honorable men and her great men were bound in chains. God's asking me, you think you're better than them? And, and you see what happened to them? Verse number 11 of chapter 3, Thou also shalt be drunk, and thou shalt be hid, and thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs, if they be shaken, and even they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open to thine enemies, and the fire shall devour thy bars. Nahum writes and tells him, says, draw the waters for the siege, fortify the strongholds, go into clay and tread the mortar and make strong the brickling. And there shall the fire devour thee, the sword cut thee off. He shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself as many as the canker worm. Make thyself as many as the locust. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. He says, they, they crowned her or as the locusts and the captains are as great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges in the cold day and the sun riseth and flee away and their place is not known where they are. The shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains. No man gathereth them. There's no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. And all that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee for whom 
hath not thy wickedness passed continually? He says, who is it that you've not been brutal to? You're, you know, this is, this, this is what's going to happen. Imagine having the boldness of Nahum to write this to those people. Knowing what they do to people and knowing how ruthless they are. Imagine being so bold in the things of God to, to, to write this and to put it out there. Nahum, he tells them, God says, build your bricks. Fortify your cities. Draw up your water supplies. Yeah, prepare yourselves in vain. God said, I am against thee. You've gone too far. There's no getting out of this one. The lion or the king, the young lions, the lionesses, all are going to be killed. And the remnants, whatever remnants there are, the people are going to be scattered all about throughout the hills. And nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care about the ones that got away. Nobody's going to care to take care of them. I'm going to make a nothing out of you. I'm going to make a nothing out of this entire place. There's going to be no healing. There's not going to be a return. There's not going to be a way of help or anybody to come help you. God said, there's not a people in the world that has not felt the harshness of your ways. And I'm about to turn, the, turn it back on you. I'm about to let you feel what they felt. But there's not going to be coming back. There, there's going to be great rejoicing in the land when the people hear about what's going to happen to you. There's going to be a great clapping of the hands when the people hear about the fall of Nineveh and what it is that, that I've done to you. See, Jonah shows us that when God extends mercy, it doesn't matter how wicked you are. Somebody say amen. Jonah shows us that when God extends mercy, your past doesn't matter. Your wickedness doesn't matter. Your faults, your failures, it doesn't matter how bad, how wicked you think you are, what you've done. You've done things that truly were an abomination to God. Jonah teaches about the mercy of God that says it does not matter how bad your past is. If you will turn from your sin, repent from your sin, say, God, forgive me. God is just. Sin is forgiven and forgotten. Mercy is extended. That's what Jonah shows us about this city of Nineveh. But then Nahum turns around with the same city and shows us what happens when you spit in the face of God and turn back as a dog returning to his vomit. And, you, and, and, a, and a people turns away from God. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't care about you. I got my own little trinket, God. I got my own power. I got my own money. I got my own house. I got my own stuff. And God says, let's just see about that. Let's just see what you got. Let's just see how good your stuff is. See, see the, the judgment's already set. God's vengeance is already written. The, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm dieth not. I've told y'all before I wanted to preach a sermon one time. I just want you to be taken. I wanted to title it that, that hell doesn't last forever. It only gets worse. Because the Bible says that death and hell is delivered into the lake of fire. So, so, so as bad as hell is, it just gets worse. It's delivered into the place of the lake of fire in outer darkness. If it's outer, bar, outer darkness, then there is no presence of God whatsoever. There's no presence of the Holy Spirit, no presence of goodness, no presence of peace, no presence of light. That vengeance is already set. And anybody that says, I don't need God, and I don't need your gift. God says, that's fine. I am against you. It ain't the people you got to worry about. 
It's not another nation. It's not another country. I am the one. Your sin has separated you from me. And you've rejected the gift that I've offered. Therefore, I am against you. Do you understand the urgency of why we need to be telling people about Jesus? Their fate is already sealed without Christ. Our fate was, right? Our fate was sealed without Christ. But Christ came in and changed all of that. And God made a way for, for everybody. So, so when, we look, when we look here at Nahum, that there, there's not really a lot of gospel in Nahum. It's not really a real good, feel-good kind of book. It, it, there, there's not a lot of hope and prosperity and peace and happiness in, in Nahum. There, there's, there's not a lot of joy and, and just, just gospel to be preaching, but there's a great lesson. There's a great lesson in the book. God is supreme. And God does care. And God does rule over the affairs of men. You think sin out there don't matter? Read it. It shows us that God is concerned about sin. And God will deal with sin. And it ought to make us even more Thankful for the mercy that has been extended to us and the grace that has been applied so that we don't have to deal with God's vengeance. It may not be a lot of gospel, but there's a lot of good lesson. God, God does have his limits. It's a great reminder of why we need to be telling people time is at hand. Judgment day is coming. I've been hearing them my whole life, right? Isn't that what people say? I've been hearing it my whole life. That's exactly true. I've been hearing it my whole life. That ain't going to delay its coming by one second. It's not going to make it come a second sooner or a second later. I can hear it my whole life till I die of natural causes. Hebrews 9, 27, appointed unto man wants to die. But after this, the judgment. Whether Jesus Christ comes in my life or whether I go, it doesn't matter. How I go, Jesus Christ is coming. And judgment day is coming. Now is the time. The, the night cometh when no man can work. Now is the time. Now, now is the time of repentance. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time that we are to tell. Now is the time that, that they can accept. Vengeance is coming. And God will deal with all of those who are against him. And it's this simple. If you are not a child of God, you are a child of Satan. And, it, and if, if, if that, what we see what God did to Nineveh, if that's what God in his vengeance did to an earthly city because of their choice to follow the things of Satan, what must God's vengeance be going to be like to Satan himself? And everybody on his side is going to be in the same vengeance. Man, we, we, we need to tell people, whether they listen or not, whether they listen or not, we need to be busy about telling people, amen? So I, 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 I know there, there's probably a better way to study Nahum. There's probably a better way to, to look through and find some gospel and some good news and some preaching and some smiles. I don't know, maybe there is. That's not what God showed me. What God showed me looking through it all the way back when we were looking at, at Jonah and I began looking ahead at Nahum at the two differences. That's what God showed me. But it shows me how valuable mercy is. It shows me how good God's mercy 
truly is because I deserve whatever that vengeance looks like that we can't even begin to fathom and comprehend what God's vengeance is going to look like to know that, that I've, I've been rescued from that. I, I've been saved from that. I've been given mercy to take me from that. And I've been given grace to give me a whole world of eternity with God that I don't deserve. Just makes me a whole lot more grateful. Amen. God, thank you so much for this precious book, God, that you gave us. Lord, I, I thank you for allowing us to see the extent of your mercy, God, that you've freely given to us. There's no way to be able to, to understand the magnitude of your mercy. God, there's no way to comprehend the fullness of your grace. But God, with every ounce of everything in us, God, we tell you thank you, Father, for what we do understand. We are so thankful, God, that you love us. Thank you for loving us in spite of us. God, I pray you'd help us. Make us usable vessels. Give us strength. Lord, help us to, to live a, a life. Help us to live like Christ, that the world may see Christ in us. Father, help us to not be lips and words, but to be action and, and lives that people might see Christ and see a better life and, and see what forgiveness and joy looks like, Lord. And help us, Father, to just share the, the love that you've extended to us, that others might see Christ. God, you've been good to us, Lord. We just want to serve you. We just want to please you. We just want to live in that place called the center of your perfect will. I ask your hand upon everybody, every family represented in this place, God. Would you put a hedge of protection around them, keep them safe, guide them, go with them, go before them, and make us usable vessels. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.